We as a species are addicted to story. Even when the body goes to sleep, the mind stays up all night telling itself stories. Isn't that true? In his book, uh, The Storytelling Animal, Jonathan Gottschall explores how foundational stories really are to us. We don't just love a good story, we need a good story. The story is the grease and the glue of society. It's how we impart tradition and history and wisdom. It's how we teach right and wrong. Stories have the power to unify or divide people and nations. He's right, we're addicted to stories. The success of, of Netflix and other services just show that. It's how we make sense of the world, how we make sense of our place within it. And that's why we called our church St. Peter's Fireside. When we started this church just about four years ago now, we wanted to offer our city and everyone who calls it home and anyone who might intersect with our community a good story. And from time to time, we need to revisit this story. And it's been about two years since we've preached on this story. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. And some of you here, you've heard this story before. You're familiar with this story. And I'd invite you, instead of checking out, to try to let go of what you know about this story and hear it again for the first time, because it truly is a good story. And for others here, this is your first time hearing this story. And I'm really glad you're here. I hope I can help you locate your place within it. And I'm confident that if you find yourself in this story, your life will be filled with more meaning, more healing, more purpose, a greater capacity even for suffering, and even more joy than any other story can offer. And so we're going to park in John chapter 21 this morning, and our big idea that we're going to explore is the story of St. Peter's Fireside. So if you have a Bible, open it up, John chapter 21. Uh, if you don't own a Bible, that Bible you were handed on the way in is a gift from us. It is yours. Take it home with you. And if you don't have one at all, everything you're going to need is on the screen. John chapter 21, beginning in verse 1. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel and Cana of Galilee, the sons of Zebedee and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we'll go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it's the Lord. When Simon Peter heard it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat dragging the net full of fish for they were not far from the land, about a hundred yards off. When they got on the land, they saw a charcoal fire in place. Now underline that if you have a Bible. We don't often get details, so underline that detail. They saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you've just caught. So Simon went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus 
was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. And since this was a rather long passage of Scripture, this is the word of the Lord. Now, it is tempting to wonder about that number 153. Why does John include that number? But the number we need to pay attention to is the number three. Designers and photographers have the rule of thirds. Writers and storytellers have the rule of three. And Jesus works in threes too. He remained in the grave three days. John's gospel ends on the third time he appeared to the disciples after being raised from the dead. As the saying goes, a third time is the charm. And this is a strangely comforting truth for me, and I'm sure for many of you here, because I can be particularly dense at times and stubborn, and it takes saying my name three times to get my attention. And, and sometimes I'm slow to understand, and so to see Jesus persisting in threes is rather comforting. Peter is similar. You know, at this point in John's gospel, Peter's well aware that Jesus has been raised from the dead, but he's not quite sure what that means for him. So we find him doing what he's always done. He's fishing. He was a fisherman. Life continues as it was before he started following Jesus. The resurrection, it may have turned the universe upside down, but it has yet to turn Peter's life around. And you might be in the same place as Peter. You may have heard about Jesus. You may have heard that Christians believe he's been raised from the dead. You're just not sure what difference that makes for you. How are we supposed to encounter this risen Lord anyways? Christians, it's important to know, have long believed that Jesus is God himself. And if this is true, what we discover in this passage is that we worship a God who dines with us. Jesus, he gets a fire started. He prepares breakfast. He breaks bread with his friends and he makes sure that they're well fed after a long night of hard work. This defies any picture of God being aloof and uninvolved in the world. God is into molecules and matter, the things of the earth. The truth is, you can discover God at a table as readily as you'll discover him on a spiritual pilgrimage. And sometimes you'll find them in the mundane without having to ascend to the mountaintops because life most frequently unfolds in the ordinary, on the ground. The best-selling poet uh, and essayist, essayist, that's how you say it, essayist, uh, Kathleen Norris recalls one of her first spiritual awakenings, and I love this. She was invited to a Catholic wedding and was astonished when the priest had to clean up the dishes after communion. She writes, I still find it all remarkable that in that big fancy church, after the dress-up and the formalities of the wedding mass, homage was being paid to the lowly truth that we human beings must wash the dishes after we eat and drink. The chalice, which had held the very blood of Christ, was no exception. And I found it enormously comforting to see the priest as a kind of daft housewife, uh, me, not Bishop Trevor, <laughs> overdressed for the kitchen in bulky robes, puttering about the altar, washing up having served so great a meal to so many people. It welcomed me, a stranger, someone who did not know the responses of the Mass, after experience, the experience of a liturgy that had left me feeling disoriented, eating and drinking were something I could understand. That and the housework. I love that. Jesus knows that he needs to be discovered where we are. He knows that it takes meeting us on our own turf, 
with things that make sense to us and things that we can comprehend, things that we can understand. And that's why we find him here in John's gospel serving a meal. And that's why so many people like Kathleen Norris and others in this room find him in the ordinary things of life, like cleaning the dishes. Now, just as a designer or a photographer are going to use the rule of thirds to make something beautiful, or a, a poet or a writer are going to use the rule of three to tell a good story, Jesus uses his third appearance after the resurrection to do something beautiful and something good. You see, at this fireside meal, he is setting the table for turning a life around, and many of us persist in coming here Sunday after Sunday because we want to see something turn around. We want to encounter this power that can turn lives around. And so the story continues in verse 15. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Once again, we see the third time is a charm. It takes Jesus asking the question three times before Peter really chimes into what's happening here. The dialogue hasn't changed. Just like before, Jesus asks, Simon, son of John, do you love me? But ask, after asking it for the third time, Peter finally hears it for the first time. And we read in verse 17 that when he finally comprehends what Jesus is really doing, it grieves Peter. Why would Jesus provoke his very good friend to this point of grief? It's because there's always more to the story than what we can see on the surface. And that's true of every single person in this room. Earlier in the gospel, when the movement of Jesus was getting going, Jesus had told Peter that he would be at the very heart of what God was doing in the world. Peter would be the rock on which Jesus would build the church. He even got a great nickname, the rock. I'm sure Peter envisioned himself like this rock, you know, glorious and strong, independent and dependable, a striking object of beauty against a backdrop of glory. Sorry, just reading off my resume. But <laughs> on the night, I'm just kidding, in case you don't know me well. On the night of Jesus' betrayal, Jesus gives the disciples advance notice of what's going to go down. Everything's on the verge of going south and falling apart, just as God planned. One by one, the disciples will all betray Jesus and fall away, including the rock that was supposed to be the heart of this group. But Peter, he can't handle this warning. He says in John 13, 37, I will lay down my life for you. And I think Peter meant that with every fiber of his being. I will lay down my life for you, Jesus. I will not betray you. But Jesus responds in verse 38. Will you? Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you've denied me three times. There it is again, the number three. And it happens exactly as Jesus predicts. 
After they leave the supper, Judas betrays Jesus. And in the dead of night, Jesus is arrested and put on trial before the highest courts in Judaism. We're told that Peter follows from a distance. And we read in John 18, that outside in the courtyard on this cold evening, Peter was warming himself by a charcoal fire. There he's accused of being one of Jesus' disciples. And he freezes. We read in John 18, 17, a servant girl at the door said to Peter, you aren't one of this man's disciples too, are you? He said, I'm not. There it is, one. Meanwhile, Simon Peter was still standing there warning himself. And they said to him, you aren't one of his disciples too, are you? Peter denied it and said, I'm not. It's two. One of the high priest's servants challenged him. Didn't I see you with him in the garden? Peter again denied it, and at once the rooster crowed. There it is, three. Luke adds in his gospel that after this transpired, Peter left and wept bitterly or with agony. Now Jesus has asked Peter three times, do you love me? Surely Peter has momentarily lost sense of time. You've been there, right? Memories flood his mind. You know, through the three questions, he remembers the three denials. Peter, you know, is perhaps ashamed of what he did, what he remembers. So he adverts his gaze. He looks down. But what does he see? A charcoal fire. Where did the denials take place? At a charcoal fire. You see, Jesus has gone to great lengths to recreate Peter's moment of failure and shame. Try as he may, Peter cannot escape what happened. He can no longer deny the denials, which is why he says to Jesus, Lord, you know everything. But it takes three times before Peter connects the dots, before he realizes that Jesus is trying to take him back to the denials, before he truly grieves what happened. Why? Why is he so so slow to understand The psychologist team, Carol Tavris and Elliot Aronson, wrote a book called Mistakes Were Made, But Not By Me. Wish I came up with that title. In it, they explore concepts like uh, cognitive dissonance, confirmation bias, and they argue, and listen to me on this, that our memories actually serve us as an unreliable, self-serving historian. They write... Memories are often pruned and shaped by an ego-enhancing bias that blurs the edges of past events, softens culpability, and distorts what really happened. Let that sink in. These are two secular psychologists. Memories are often pruned and shaped by an ego-enhancing bias that blurs the edges of past events, softens culpability, and distorts what really happened. For example, they're part of research where they asked wives uh, what percentage of the housework they do, and they would respond, are you kidding? I do almost everything, at least 90%. And then they would ask the husbands the same question, and the men would say, this is a terribly gendered study. I'm not sure why you're putting us into these categories of men and women serving this way, but I do a lot, actually probably about 40%. And they discovered, and no matter who they were asking, the total always exceeded 100% excessively. So I'll be honest, I do about 3% of the housework at the home, and Julia does 99%. Tavris and Aronson, they write, it's tempting to conclude that one spouse, whoa, 
Don't mind me. Carpet. One spouse <laughs> is lying, but it's more likely that they're each remembering in a way that enhances his or her contribution. Over time, as the self-serving distortions of memory kick in and we forget or we misremember past events, we may come to believe our own lies little by little. We know we do something wrong, but gradually we begin to think it wasn't all our fault. And after all, the situation was complex. Studies upon studies show that when ordinary people like you and I do something wrong, break a promise, fall short of an ideal, betray a friend, we usually fold it into a narrative that denies or at least diminishes our guilt. Our memories, they work hard to write a story in which we are not as bad as we really are. In big or small ways, our memories distort the facts so we can cope with not being who we wished we were. And so we try to write a story that says we may have made mistakes, but deep down, deep down, we're still good people. And when we're comfortable with the story we've written, when we've found ways to ignore our shame or our guilt, it can take more than a question to cut through and get to the truth. And in this case, for Peter, it takes three. It takes three questions before Peter connects with the true memories. Jesus had called it. Jesus was right. Peter denied him not once, but three times. Jesus saw parts of Peter that Peter didn't even see in himself. Peter was busy writing for himself a narrative where he was the hero, where he was the rock, the strong one, the leader. But when this fell apart, Peter tried to go on with life as usual. It was complex. It was a crazy moment. I'm really not that bad. He went back to fishing and he worked to deny the denials. But now he can't. Because Jesus has forced him to remember the truth. And he's grieved before the Lord who knows everything. There's a quiet ghostwriter in this text. The story is underwritten by shame. You see, our memories, yes, they try to distort the facts, but we do this to alleviate negative emotions like shame. Uh, Brene Brown, who's like the Pope of the internet, uh, <laughs> defines shame as the intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we're flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. Something we've experienced, done, or failed to do makes us unworthy of connection. It takes a lot of courage to admit to ourselves, let alone to others, that deep down we feel like we're falling short, that deep down we feel like something isn't quite right, that we're actually ashamed of who we are. And that's why we try to rewrite the story. But there's details in your story, details like a charcoal fire that put a wrinkle in the page. You know the, the moments, the experiences, the hurts in your life that make you want to hide away from people the feeling like there is something wrong with you, the certainty within yourself that you want to deny that something is broken in you. And it's tempting to gloss it over, to ignore it, or to try to make it not feel as bad as it really does feel to you. But the gift of this passage is this. You don't have to. You don't have to hide. You see, whatever 
That detail is in your life. The story you would rather rewrite, the parts of yourself that you want to deny, you don't have to deny them. Some of the most terrifying and yet most liberating words that you can say are, I don't have it all together. And that's just a step towards admitting we're fallen short. We're sinners in the biblical language. We need God. Peter says it, Lord, you know everything. You know about the denials. You know about the brokenness. And you know I love you. All of us are a mixed bag of brokenness and beauty, of falling short and soaring high. Sinners with a deep longing for goodness, but we're definitely not as good as we think we are, and we're ashamed of that. But the first step of healing is this. I don't have it all together. And here's the beauty and the goodness in this story. Listen up. Check in. Jesus opens up a gracious space for Peter. A gracious space is where you welcome someone as they are, and with patience you love them, and you sit with them until their guard comes down, and the masks come off, and they connect with you as they really are. And Jesus does this masterfully. He knows that Peter is in the depths of denial and shame. He creates a gracious space for Peter in all the details, from a charcoal fire to it being his third appearance to the three questions. And he patiently brings Peter back to the details of what really happened, the parts of his story that he wished didn't exist, to show him that even at his worst, even in his sin, even in his lowest moment, he is not alone. Jesus is with him. The place of Peter's deepest shame, the place of Peter's deepest shame is met with presence, a meal, a friend, a Lord, a Savior, full of love, compassion, and patience. And in this gracious space, Peter can discover his true worth. You see, his shame will say he's unworthy. His ego will try to write a better story where he's not as bad as he really is. But Jesus undoes all of that and writes a better story for Peter and a better story for us. Your worth is not the bright lights of your highlight reel or the burnt out bulbs of your failures. You are worth as much as you are loved. You are worth as much as you are loved. And Jesus died for you so that your sins could be forgiven and so that you could be welcomed into the presence of God free of charge. The author and pastor Tim Keller puts it this way. The cross shows us that we're far worse than we ever imagined and far more loved than we could ever dream. Peter's sin is overcome by the power of the cross, but Peter's shame is overcome by presence. Even in his shame, Peter is not unworthy of connection to Jesus because who's sitting with him at the charcoal fire other than the risen Lord himself? And perhaps some of us here, I'm sure many of us here, are still in that battle with shame. 
You feel unworthy of love and connection. You feel that if people really saw who you are, they would leave. That you would never be accepted. And yet Jesus sees everything about you, even the parts you can't see about yourself. And he is sitting patiently with you. And he's offering you his grace and love all the same. Because the cross has made you worthy of his love. After creating a gracious space where Peter can step out of shame and into grace, Jesus responds just as he did the first two times. Feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my lambs. In a profound way, Jesus is saying to Peter, you are not beyond grace. You will never be on grace. I am not finished with you and I never will be finished with you. Peter has received grace and now he can truly walk into the man Jesus has called him to be because grace empowers us to walk into a better future. Do you see that in this passage? Without this moment with Jesus, what could Peter have possibly offered the world if he went out trying to feed sheep? His ego? His strength? His denial? But now if he takes the command to feed my lambs and tend to my sheep, he'll go out and he's going to feed them with grace. He's going to tend to them with grace because grace is what the world desperately needs and grace is the rock and the foundation of the church. And if you've received this grace, you are called to go out into this city with grace. What does that look like for us? We create gracious space with our presence. You become a gracious space. Be it at work or home, in coffee shops or at the SkyTrain. We create gracious space by sitting with people long enough and patiently enough and consistently enough and lovingly enough so that the mask they wear can slowly come down so that the parts of themselves they would rather hide can be shown and welcomed. And when someone shows you what is really going on below, you don't try to fix it. You show them the graciousness of Jesus, the risen Lord who's sitting there with them all along, the risen Lord who connects to us in our shame. And you show them that our worth is not found in our successes nor our failures, but in his love. If you're worried about stepping into this space, a gracious space, no, it's it's not a perfect space. It's a gracious space. One where we might welcome well one day and not as well the next. But we acknowledge it. You see, creating gracious space, it takes time, it takes patience, but most of all, it takes experiencing grace for yourself. If you try to do this on your own effort, you're going to fall flat on your face. You see, a gracious space is the reality in which you have put your faith in Jesus. You have received his spirit, his spirit of grace, and that's how you're empowered to become a gracious space for others. And so perhaps, wrapping this up, perhaps if we're going to be addicted to any story, this might be a story to be addicted to. And perhaps parts of this story are speaking to you, but there still are parts that don't quite fit. You're exploring faith, or maybe you're disenfranchised with the whole package of Christianity, or if you're wondering if God can be found at all. Here's the truth that I want you to walk away with this morning. God is often closer than we think and closer than we would like. 
He'll be found cleaning dishes and sitting with us in our shame. And wherever you may be on this journey, my prayer and my hope is that this place might be a gracious space for you. A place where you can struggle with doubt, wrestle with pain, or take the time to decide if Jesus really is who he claimed to be, or if following him is still worth it after all these years. We started this church, my friends, St. Peter's Fireside, because this story is too good to keep to ourselves. And if I'm going to be addicted to a story, I want it to be this one. And our dream is that this place and our people might be a gracious space. So may our city receive grace upon grace. May we all receive grace upon grace. And may you receive grace upon grace.